welcome to the Financial Planning for Canadian Business Owners podcast. You will hear about industry insights with award-winning financial planner and entrepreneur, Jason Pereira. Through the interviews with different experts with their stories and advice, you will learn how you can navigate the challenges of being an entrepreneur, plan for success, and make the most of your business and life. And now, your host, Jason Pereira. Hello and welcome. Today on the podcast, I have Jeff Cullen, owner and lead consultant of Basecamp 4. Basecamp 4 is a company that specializes in exit planning. I brought him on the show to talk about the exit life cycle and what it looks like to kind of, from an exit planner's perspective and a client perspective, to go through certain milestones and the journey of exiting. And with that, here's my interview with Jeff. Jeff, thanks for taking the time. Thanks, Jason. I appreciate it. Great to be on the show. My pleasure to have you. So tell us a little bit about what it is you guys do. So exit planning is, uh, I guess, an emergent specialization in management consulting. And it is particularly being driven by a rising, or I guess you could say that time is running short for a lot of business owners. So I first got involved with exit planning about eight to 10 years ago. And at the time, everybody was already talking about you know, this this sort of tsunami of baby boomers, uh, we we're going to have this this wall of exits. And somehow that did not happen. It got delayed about, you know, 10, 12 years. But now with the um, coming out of uh, the pandemic and just the fact that that people are getting older, there's a there's a huge number of business owners in Canada, the United States, who are going to be needing or in some cases being forced to exit their businesses. And the whole idea behind exit planning is to maximize the value and basically get the most successful exit plan or exit from your business as possible. It's not something that just happens kind of by chance. It's a fairly complex process that owners have to start to undertake you know, with a reasonable uh, amount of time before they can expect to just be outside of their business. So Absolutely. So I'm not surprised it's taken longer than it, it, it should have. Uh, I mean, for various reasons. A, I mean, I think a lot of those assumptions assumed a lot of people were going to retire either on 65, at 65 or earlier. And right. for those who know most business owners, most business owners don't retire early. They tend to work a long time. And, and part of that is simply because, you know, we know this for a lot of entrepreneurs is an unhealthy balance, right? They don't necessarily have the thing to do or what I refer to as the retirement plan. That's not about money. So like, what are they going to do with their time, which we'll come back to later. So I'm not surprised it took longer. And as for, you know, eventually forced to exit, you know, it's funny. I always, I was tongue in cheek say, well, look, everybody exits at some point. You can either do it vertically or horizontally. It's your call. And uh, I know which one I want to pick. So basically, you're there to help and guide this. So let's let's talk about the life cycle of this and how this works. So when do business owners typically go looking for your services? Well, that's part of the challenge. I think typically, as you were just saying, a lot of them don't until uh, they are in a situation where something has happened, what we would call mm. an inverse event. And when I was working with the Business Development Bank of Canada years ago, that's mostly what we were doing. People would have a a six month to maybe a year uh, window, either they're burned out, they've had enough, or there's been some uh, life event sort of outside of the business that's forcing them now into a position where they have to exit. And that's not ideal. So really what we're trying to do as an industry is raise awareness with owners that if you wait to that time, it's not that you won't be able to exit, although we know, and the Exit Planning Institute's done tons of research on you know the numbers of companies that don't successfully exit. And it's a pretty shockingly high number. It's something like eight and 10, you know, we're not going to have a successful exit. Now, how you define success I define it in that in that term as being in control, you know, getting the outcome you want and not having to compromise significantly. Some will be somewhere between they'll have to liquidate their business because it's just not sellable. And then 
a lot of them will have some kind of exit that may or may not be ideal. So, you know, when should they enter? Really, we're, we're trying to raise awareness that the, the sooner you start thinking about an exit, and the reality is exit planning is, for the most case, it's no different than just business planning. A lot of the things that are going to make a, an exit successful are going to make the business successful, you know, in, in the 5, 10, or 15 years before exit. Adding capacity to the management team, uh, making the business less dependent on the owner for all, every decision, every relationship, every connection. So sometimes we, we use the term maturing the business. I like capacity building because the businesses that are most successful at exit are the ones that it's almost like the owner can just step out have whoever is going to be, you know, stepping in, whether that be a buyer or a successor internally or a family member and hand them the keys and walk away. But most owners don't do that. They, they hold on to dear life until a bitter end. They hold on to dear life. And I think a part of that is just the reality that a lot of business owners started a business when they were young, they may have had a lot of expertise in, well, let's, let's take a plumber or an HVAC technician as an example, right? Somebody comes out Mm -hmm. of trade school, maybe they do an apprenticeship, they work for a company. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs, what happens is they're cut from a certain cloth and, you know, they may look around and go, I'm not too happy with how people are running things around here. I think I could do better. Mm -hmm. And certain degree of confidence and a lot of them then start a business and they are successful, right? They're, they're driven by that, that sort of street smart, they know what they're doing and they, because they've come from maybe an environment where they had a boss that they didn't think, you know, was, was doing it the way they would, they maintain a lot of that control. And that's really effective for a period of time in a business. And for some people maintaining at a certain size that they can control is great. Some owners want to grow and that's the first place where they'll start to run into some of these issues around uh, capacity, right? Like you cannot manage a 25, 35 person company the same way that you can manage an eight person company. And so that's one of the first steps where, you know, they might run into problems. So let's not give away all the answers just yet. Okay. Okay. Stop for a second. So, so basically, you know, as I said before, you alluded to the adverse events. I guess there's a third way you exit, which is diagonally. So you're not quite, you're not quite, you ain't dead, but you ain't in your full capacity uh, is the issue, right? So, um, unfortunately, as always, um, this type of planning just doesn't happen enough. So, okay. So whether it be an adverse event or not, you know, you get involved. Let's talk about how you start assessing the business to understand where the where the holes are. I mean, you addressed you just said where a lot of the holes are, but yeah. you know, what is what does your process look like to really understand what's going on with that business? Well, everything starts with a conversation, first of all. And um, whereas a lot of of I guess traditional exit planning, because there's a lot of professionals that do it, right? There's accountants and lawyers. The method we use is a lot more holistic. So there's there's talk of the three-legged stool, which is basically the business, the financial plan for the individual and their family. And then there's the personal side, the what are you going to do the day that you're no longer the boss, right? And so the assessment that we would do kind of starts to touch on all three of those elements. And a lot of it's just asking questions, raising some awareness. We might connect if they have a financial planner, where's that at? Do Do they have a number in mind? What's their timeline like? So we get some of that initial discovery. And and one of the really powerful tools to try to stimulate people is that we call it the three gap analysis, where you would look at what kind of number do you think you need? And again, if they have a financial planner, they can get an actual number. If they haven't really thought about it, we might just do a back of the envelope. What's your income divided by three or 4%. And let's say we come up with a $10 million number, right? Given their lifestyle. So that gives them a starting point. 
what are their assets worth at that time? Let's say they have 3 million in assets, property, whatnot. So we would quickly be able to identify a $7 million gap. You know, to maintain the lifestyle you want, you need to get $7 million from somewhere, likely the sale of your business. Once we establish a number like that, and again, it's it's high level and strategic, we can then look at the business and do, again, a strategic valuation based on how the business is operating. So we'd go in and we'd look at a whole bunch of factors. It's a questionnaire-based thing. We get their financials, you know, run some ratios. And what we're trying to position is two things. Where are they at, you know, with respect to their industry in terms of profitability? You know, are they top of class? Are they near the bottom? Are they somewhere in the middle? And given what industry multiples are for their industry, the way that, let's say, uh, uh, an M&A advisor would look at it, again, where do they score if the best businesses are, let's say, a three times earnings? Sorry, the worst businesses are, are let's say, a two. The best in class is at eight. Where do they fit in that in that spectrum. So that then gives them kind of a, a valuation for today. You know, let's say they're making a million dollars to the bottom line with a five times multiple. Okay, well that would give them five million. In our little scenario, we've identified that really they need to sell the business for seven, you know, to meet their financial needs. Well, well let's let's stop we, for a sec, quick second here. Quick a quick point. because uh, we've encountered uh, you know the first point of conflict. How many people take well to the fact you're telling them their baby's not pretty? <laughs> Well, it's funny you mention that. So one of the one of the leaders in our industry has written a book called "Your Baby Is Ugly," and uh, that's where I think coming in and and establishing a relationship, having a bit of a, a dialogue at first, and at the end of the day, the process is quite objective. And with working with an owner, there's nothing worse than a consultant comes in, takes a bunch of information, goes off, and then comes back and, and presents a report, and it's a surprise. That's not how I like to work. The assessment is done in a way that everything is kind of transparent. And it, there's a logical progression where, you know, most owners know how they're performing, right? And if they don't, you can give them a bit of a benchmark that they can evaluate. So I'm not doing my job if at the end of the process, it's a total surprise. I mean, they may start thinking that their, their business is worth $10 million. But as we start going through the assessment, it becomes apparent pretty quickly that they're not going to score, you know, where they need to be. Having said that, yeah, it's it's still a sobering reality. I mean, a lot of people, I think it's human nature. And I love the way that you, you talked about it, their baby, because for a lot of particularly older owners, it is their child, right? They, 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 they birthed it, they raised it, they loved it, they've supported it. And now somebody's coming in and, and giving them a bit of a dose of reality. It's not easy to do. But it's pretty important, I think, in the context of will you succeed at achieving what you want in the long run? Excellent. So you come in, you, and I think rightly so, I mean, once you get a sense for the business, benchmarking data, that's what you're doing. You're providing them with benchmarking data. So you're doing that. So talk to me about what, you know, what sort of gap analysis you're running on basically you explain to them what it takes to go from the two to the four X multiple and how you're assessing those gaps. So we would we would take a look at a lot of, of different aspects of the business. So again, a lot of it's operational, but the first steps are usually around risk mitigation. So for instance, if if an owner uh, was operating, you know, with let's say 80% of their revenue is with one client, that would be a red flag, right? Particularly to to a purchaser down the road. So we might identify a strategic need to diversify their their market. You know, we've got to find some better buyers. And then associated with that would be what is the nature of the relationship? Even if that that one client becomes let's say forty percent, can we do things to lock them in so that they're not somebody that could easily depart if the owner steps out and then you know this client goes well. 
the relationship is gone, you know, so how can you solidify that? Depth of the management team. Again, what's the gap between the owner, owner or owners and senior managers? I've seen so many companies where when I draw the actual org chart, it's, you know, owner operator at the very top, this massive gap, and then everybody's down at the bottom. So, you know, filling in that pyramid and saying, what we really need to do is get to a point where you've got a team that at least collectively know 80% or more of what you know, so that when you do exit, it's not a disaster. And particularly, like we said, and if an exit should happen unexpectedly, the company can can, can survive, right? I mean, the worst thing is uh, an owner gets something bad happens and now suddenly, you know, the family inherits a business that nobody knows where any of the uh, documents are and, and, you know, all of that was in the owner's head. So by removing some of that risk, that creates value. Yep. Uh, it's, I mean, frankly, it's it's just professional. I like to say you call it systemizing. I mean, professionalizing and operationalizing the business, right? At the end yeah. of the day, it's a business has to mature to the point, as you said, where it can be, the head of the snake can be cut off without without a dying to some degree. <laughs> and I, if anyone is taking strategic coach as a, as a business co- consulting or business coaching uh, framework, Dan Sullivan refers to this as a self-managing business, right? At the end of the day, right, you know, exactly. if you really want to be of high value to your business, you should be doing but nothing but putting out like the upper echelon biggest fires and strategic thinking, not being the person collecting cash at the till. Like that is that is not yeah. the highest, best use of, of an entrepreneur's time. Okay. So you identify those. I mean, how much those gaps in terms of fixing this, like how much resistance do you see on average to, to acceptance of this? Like, let's just say successfully, how many people actually take those leaps or how many just bury their head in the sand and go back to what they were doing before? <laughs> I couldn't give you a percentage. I'll be honest, you know, out of the clients that I've worked with, and let's talk a little bit about the delivery model, first of all. So this doesn't happen overnight. It's typically a fairly long process and it's done. Typically we do it 90 days at a time. Because if you lay out a plan that is this sort of long, long plan with way too many factors, it, it does become overwhelming. And there's the reality that they still have to run the business, right? And particularly in the early stages, if it's not being run that well. They're still putting out fires. They they So it's kind of a baby step thing. So a model that, that takes it kind of 90 days at a time, we identify the most critical value added things, work on those. It sort of builds its own momentum. And the nice thing too, is because we're tying it to evaluation, you, know, you can do six or nine months of work and then reevaluate and see if the needles move. And generally it has. And so now it's giving them something to, again, tie back to and say, okay, some of it was hard. Some of it was, was maybe not so hard, but I can see a tangible outcome, a tangible benefit, and I'm willing to, to do more. And that's the other thing. Every 90 days, it's a sit down and then it's a decision point. Like, do we continue building value? Here's the next things on the list. Or are you ready to trigger an exit? And at some point, maybe they've elevated the value by several million dollars and they've reevaluated their, their life path and they go, maybe I don't need the seven. You know, Maybe some of our ambitions have changed a bit. And if we can sell it for five, we're good. So that may shorten our timeline. Also, sometimes what happens is as the business starts to run better, become more systematized, and the owner moves into a more of a strategic leadership position, a lot of cases, some of the burnout and and frustration uh, gets reduced because, you know, I've worked with a lot of owners, again, these late stage folks who one of the big impetuses is something had happened and they're just, they're frustrated. They've had enough, they're burned out, they're tired. But once it starts running better and they can actually see the potential to achieve some of the things they wanted to do, 
sometimes they get really reinvigorated and re-excited, right? So they may have thinking they wanted to exit and now they're thinking, well, maybe I don't leave, you know, maybe we can grow this thing for another three years and, and get into acquisition mode or so it, it kind of opens up a lot of, of potential. Obviously, if an owner is just totally resistant to changing and it's just a constant slog, I generally will pull the plug. Like we might do a three or six month and then we'll have a sit down and they've got to be committed. Like, but you cannot change and create the value if the people at the top aren't willing to do it. And I've had a lot of clients that, you know, for whatever personal reason, you can sit and strategize and, and everybody around the table agrees on something. And then Monday morning comes and, and they've decided over the weekend that, nope, we're not going to stop doing that. I had one client, we had totally convinced them to get out of the contracting business. They were a manufacturer, which they were profitable at. They'd gotten into contracting, which they were not profitable at. It was just clear. We ran the numbers. Everybody was in agreement. Came in on a Monday morning and he said, oh, I took three contracts over the weekend because I wanted to. And at that point, you know, you realize, okay, there's just so much you can do, right? Like until yeah, they're- You can't, can't get blood from a stone at the end of the well, day. That's right. that yeah, exactly. And I mean, it, it is their business, right? I mean, I'm not there to tell them what's right. I'm there to, if you tell me you want to achieve X, then we'll create a roadmap and we'll yeah. hold you accountable and support. But at the end of the day, if you decide that the roadmap's not where you want to go, that's fine. It's not my business. It's, you know, it's theirs. Yeah. Well, I mean, in some ways you've already told them the outcome, right? If they want X, they have to do Y. If they don't want to listen to what Y is, that's on them, right? So it's, you know, it's a delicate, sensitive thing, but unfortunately, sooner or later, you need a cold, like I said, your, your baby's not pretty and you got to get a fess up to that sometimes. Okay. So forget <clears throat> the failures, because I'm sure failure can happen very easily. Let's talk about the successes. So clearly the successes are the ones who take the time to listen to what it is you're saying, continuing on. You know, let's just say that the, things are progressing and they're getting closer to it. Besides the business aspect of this, what else are you coaching them around on what they should be doing to prepare for that exit? Well, because it's a holistic model, one of the things that we would do earlier on is connect into, depending on the size of the business, if it's smaller, the world of brokerage, if it's a bigger business, we would start getting some M&A or investment banking people that are part of our network. And again, it's just a question of, there's a lot of options on how you, you can exit this. What's the right fit? Do you want to sell it to your employees? There's mechanisms for that. Is it, a, is it a transfer internally? Do you want to sell it to a third-party buyer? And then again, what kind of buyer? Is it a strategic buyer? Is it an investment thing? Do they want to actually take full ownership out or do they want to stay involved? So again, by raising some of these questions and identifying options and then being able to connect them to the experts, because I know enough to be dangerous in a lot of these areas, but I'm not, a, I'm not an M&A guy. I'm not an investment banker. I, I've worked with a bunch. But if I can connect them to the right player, again, with some runway, well, then we can orient even what we're doing on the strategic side to be aligned with what you know the exit they want, because they're all different. And again, I think part of it is that a lot of owners, look, they're like everybody else, right? They spend 90, 99% of their time thinking about their industry, not about the one-time event of selling their business. So if we can bring in the right experts, and that's part of it too, right? It's bringing in experts at every stage. So what you do, there's some real connections early in, in the process. If an owner doesn't have a financial planner, or if the financial planner they have is someone they've been using, you know, since they were unmarried in their 20s, and it's just kind of a retail by rote, I would probably raise the idea of maybe we want to connect you with somebody who's a bit more sophisticated 
now that you're either are a net worth, high net worth, or are likely going to become one, maybe we need a, a more broader and a little bit more specialized approach. So again, that's an opportunity to bring value to an owner just in raising their awareness because nobody sits around their office thinking, I wonder if my investment planning guy is the right fit, right? They, they have to kind of be- Well, they usually suspect it in that. advance. <laughs> okay. Yeah, they typically suspect. It. I mean, I've seen it too. Like there, there's any number of times where professionals will outgrow the advisors that they're dealing with, whether it be a financial advisor, accountant, lawyer, whatever it is. And you know, there's, I find there's two types. There are those who suspect, well, three types. Those who know and just pull the trigger themselves. Those who suspect and look for outside validation, and those who just bury their head in the sand about it. Uh, yeah. Unfortunately, the last one is very costly, as many <laughs> people I know have found out. Okay, so basically, again, so you're you're making sure you're helping them set up themselves for success for when this windfall comes in. Makes perfect sense. At the end of the day, the again, they, they might be dealing with someone, for all we know, they got a $250,000 RSP, right? Because all the money went into the business and now 7 million is going to land on there. And the same person they spoke to once a year and knew nothing about them, you know, stands to get that windfall without necessarily having the skill set to actually do the right job. So yeah, very valuable. Exactly. Yeah. Well, and we'd also bring in, you know, if they don't have the right tax and estate planners, because that all factors into it as well, right? So somebody could get a, a, a windfall, but if they haven't positioned themselves in terms of their fina- personal finances, there's nothing worse than getting hit then with the big tax bill or, or and then, you know, say, well, shit, I wish I'd known three months ago, six months ago or, or whatever. So, again, that's part of what I do is, is just raise those issues, those questions. And if the answer is, I have no idea, then, you know, we can bring in people from our network that can help with them with that. Maybe you need to have an estate plan done, or you say you want to, you know, build a foundation or, you want, or you've got a family situation where, you know, you've got kids that are in the business and then you've got kids that are not. Again, there's all sorts of mechanisms that I know are out there. Let's find the right advisor, work with them, coordination with what we're doing so that at the end, you know, kind of everything has now been coordinatedly planned and it kind of comes together. That to me is a, a successful exit. You know, they get what they want, they maximize uh, the value and they're positioned, you know, in terms of their financial and their personal and all of their affairs to, again, get the best outcome. That to me is a a successful exit, but they don't happen that often because a lot of owners are uh, unaware and um, think for whatever reason that their baby is beautiful and that sure, when they put it up for sale, you know, there'll be a a long line of, of suitors at the door. Um, mm-hmm. Followed over themselves to you know pay them eight times earnings or whatever, and it's yep. just seen that. Yeah. Seen that people are like you know valuators come in and tell them the range is going to be between like four to five, and they're like, well, I think it's worth this much, and it's like that's interesting that you think it's worth this much. This is a wonderful example of the endowment effect in behavioral finance. But at the end of the day, uh, and so I've actually turned it around on people before and said, okay, your neighbor down the st- your biggest competitor who's got the same amount of size as you comes to you and says they want the same amount of money for that. Are you to pay that. And you know what's what's funny is more often than not the question is no no because of problem X Y Z whatever and it's just like well what do you think is going to happen when you start marketing your business right? right some of them listen some of them don't but it's um, oftentimes I think it's just partially it's a defense that some of it's ego some of it is not being ready and creating obstacles yeah no absolutely and I think that that is the challenge that our industry is facing I there's often I think you and I talked about it when we we met originally right the industry people who write in articles, this huge pile of gold that everybody thinks is out there. Uh, but the reality is a lot of the older owners, they're going to go down with the ship. They're not going to, um, or I guess they'll they'll stay wedded to the idea that someone will come in and, and write them a big check until they don't. Um, yep. 
until oh. they kick the bucket and no one's around to actually run the place or, you know, then we're not, that's not even addressing the fact that many of them will look to pass it on to their kids who may not be actually able to run the business and run it to the ground. That's happened on countless occasions. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah, it's uh, and the thing, you know, unfortunately, in those cases, it's never them that pays the price. It's typically the spouses. Unfortunately, seen that on more than one right. occasion. And, you know, leaving a spouse in a situation where they have to basically sell a business in that they have no experience with. And maybe, you know, maybe that spouse has no experience. Well, it's going to have no experience in business necessarily uh, as well and leaving completely lost at a time of grief. You know, there's a reason the fire sale price is used as a terminology like that. You're, you're basically, you're at a fire sale now. And every day that passes is the one day that that business slowly starts to fall apart even more and more without the, without the person there running it. So it's a challenge. Yeah. It's a real challenge. And again, it's one of these things, I, I go back to my, my clay comment about the, you know, vertical, horizontal, or in some forms, diagonal. You're dead, you pass on that problem. The vertical problem is a very real one too, because I'm sure you've seen it. How many cases that, was there an adverse event where they could no longer work or could no longer work to the same extent, which brought down the value of the firm because no one could basically operate it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, and then, you know, we haven't even really scratched on, on businesses that are, uh, you know, owned by several partners oh, and if you go in and then you say, you know, do you, one of the first questions in those situations I always ask is, do you have a unanimous shareholders agreement? And nine out of 10 times, the answer is... Well, either no, or we have one, but you know, somebody's wife drafted it and I never really read it. It's like, okay, well, maybe we should go through it and have, again, the appropriate people look in, look into it because there's sometimes the old uh, uh, underfunded in, uh, insurance policy, right? Where the company is now having to- uh, We have insurance, but unfortunately that insurance is only covers you know half a million dollars in the business worth four. Exactly. Right? And, no, well, exactly. yeah, it's like, or, you know, there's any, you know, I think the legendary one that floats around in my industry is the case where the, the partnership agreements also can be just terrible, right? There was one famous for famous case in, in planning circles where the price, the valuation given in the partnership agreement was, was the amount equal to the face to the death benefit of the insurance. It's like, Oh, wow. So the business could be worth $5 million. You have $250,000 in insurance policy and you're contractually obligated to sell at that price. That's interesting. Yeah. 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 It's uh, so yeah. Having, having one that's actually, this is where I always, I will always say it every time. Do not deal with generous lawyers, deal with specialist lawyers who do this all the time. Otherwise, you know, you don't want the guy who did your, for lack of a term, with all due respect, the guy who did your uh, house closing and also took care of, takes care of your labor situation and also drafted your wills to part do your partnership agreement. In fact, odds are something broke on that journey already. Yeah, no, exactly. I remember a, a particular client, I was talking with his wife, it's a family owned business, 100 year old business, which actually mm. kind of fell apart because of family issues. And, and it was pretty ugly. But early on in the process, you know, we talk about we're assessing different things. And I wanted to know about the owner's life insurance. And the wife was the CFO. And she said, well, he doesn't have life insurance because he doesn't believe in it. And I was like, he doesn't. It's not a ghost. It exists. This is my first line every time. It's like, well, that can, was my question. Like, yeah. Does he not believe it exists? And then she said, oh, no, he knows it exists, but he doesn't want to bet against himself. And again, I was like, you know, that's a sure bet, right? That's uh, it. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I, I don't know about you, but if I could bet on 100% probability of something of winning, I think I would take that bet. So that's awesome. But you know what that raises, Jason, is that again, and I remember so many of these that I would work, even though they were late stage, you know, my expertise was around the, the, the interpersonal side, right? We'd use like an interest-based as just trying to knit people together. The accountants and the lawyers know the financial side of it and things look good on paper, but that was never really the problem. It was always these interpersonal 
uh, whether it be some between siblings, some unaddressed grievance from 25 years before, or or some tension between partners where they become, you know, really they just dig in their heels, and it doesn't make sense you know, from a from a spreadsheet point of view. And you have to dig deeper and try to figure out, okay, what's like what's really going on, right? I, I once had an owner tell me and his partners he'd rather sell to strangers than to to his partners, which caused like this, you know, deafening silence. And once we unpacked all of that, there was all of this hurt feelings and he felt he'd been exited. There's a lot of bitterness in that room. And that's for they sure. He felt he left them in the lurch and, and, you know, we were able to navigate that, but that then starts getting into almost like a therapeutic place. But if we hadn't pushed through that, you know, the numbers never would have worked. So it's a very interesting, and the reason I like it is, although I love finance and, and being a, previously an engineer, you know, I'm, I'm a quant guy, but I also like the, the sort of the rough edges, what's motivating people and how can we get them to move forward and, and let go and, and, you know, move to the future. It's, I think that's what makes it so challenging, but when it works, it's pretty awesome. You know, people are very, uh, you've achieved something beyond just the regular. So it is an exciting albeit challenging thing to do for sure. Excellent. So thank you for sharing that kind of journey and outline. Where can people find you if they're interested in talking learning more? The website is basecamp4.ca. That's the numeral four. And if you go there, then you can actually uh, access all of my social media, LinkedIn, Facebook. Uh, we have a web, we have a YouTube channel where we do content. But yeah, the website's probably the easiest place to find me. I am in Edmonton, but you know we are blessed now post COVID with uh, I think more of a normalcy of working pretty much anywhere. So I'm I'm by no means geographically uh, limited. So yeah, so Basecamp four, the numeral four dot ca, and um, that's where you can find me. Excellent. Thank you so much for your time. And that was today's episode of Financial Plan for Canadian Business Owners. As always, if you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you your podcast. Until next time, take care. This podcast was brought to you by Woodgate Financial, an award-winning financial planning firm catering to high net worth individuals, business owners, and their families. To learn more, go to woodgate.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, and Spotify, or find more episodes at jasonperera.ca. You can even ask Surrey, Alexa, or Google Home to subscribe for you.